Well, this morning, I just want to begin by saying once again, thank you to all of you here at Apostles Church who have just been so kind and loving and supportive to me and my wife and our family through this troubling season that we've been in. And it's just such a a beautiful thing to be a part of a church that takes seriously the word of God, takes seriously our responsibilities as the family of God, and prays for people who are going through hard times and supports and loves and encourages people in the body of Christ who are going through a hard time and does that even for your pastors. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, We've just felt so loved over the last few weeks. As Ryan mentioned, we are coming very close to the end of our study through the Psalter. Uh, Next week, Psalm 41 is going to be the end of our study in the Psalms. Uh, We will at that point have completed book one of the Psalter. And so we're going to end that next week. And then the following week, we're going to begin the New Testament epistle Colossians. So we're going to study the letter to the Colossians together. So I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait to just get into an epistle think about Christ directly and what he has done. Think about life together as the body of Christ and the church. And so uh, I trust it's going to be a very enriching study through Colossians together. Well, focusing on Psalm 40, the title of the sermon this morning is this, he can do it again. He can do it again. This Psalm has two main halves. Uh, Verses one through 10 is David offering thanksgiving or praise to the Lord. And then there's a really, really abrupt shift at verse 11. And the rest of the psalm is petition. It's David crying out to the Lord. So it's sort of a psalm of thanksgiving for the first half and then a psalm of petition in the second half. Older scholars felt that Psalm 40 must have been two individual prayers originally that were then merged together to make one uh, psalm here in Psalm 40. And the reason they thought that is because that, that shift that happens at verse 11 is just so abrupt. It really feels in some senses like this is two totally separate prayers. More modern scholars think that this psalm though can be understood as one connected prayer. And I fully agree. The link, I think, is something that the apostle Paul gets to in Uh, Philippians chapter four in that famous passage where he talks about not being anxious and instead being prayerful. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians four, six, and seven. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So time out really quick. Paul's saying, don't be overwhelmed with anxiety. So he's, he's writing about circumstances that are challenging and hard. Don't be overwhelmed with anxiety. Instead, go to prayer. But then he says this, With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That little key right there, with thanksgiving, is exactly that. It's a key. What Paul, I think, has in mind in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is similar to what David does in Psalm 40. Namely, that when we are overwhelmed in our circumstances and we're facing trials and difficulties and hardships— and we come to God in prayer, one of the most important things we can do in that time of prayer is reflect back on God's faithfulness to us in the past. Have a time of thankfulness for what God has already done for us. Because as we reflect on what God has done for us in the past, it will give us confidence and it will bolster our faith in our present crisis 
to trust God again. And Paul there says that as we operate that way in our prayer life, in times of trial, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is so significant. And I think that Psalm 40 then, understood in this way, becomes a great template to help us to learn to pray effectively whenever we're stuck in a hard place. The beginning of this psalm covers a past deliverance, and that's really the first point this morning. Verses 1 through 3 are going to be David reflecting back in the past to a time when he was in a tough spot, and guess what? The Lord showed up, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord delivered him. Let's reread these three verses. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So again, notice David here begins this time of prayer, looking back at a past trial and at a past deliverance that the Lord had brought him. He writes that he waited patiently. Now, literally in the Hebrew there, he is, he's saying this, I waited, waited. He says the word waited twice in Hebrew. And that double use is a way of emphasizing the idea that he really waited during this previous trial. I like that because it, it conveys this idea that David didn't get immediate relief when he came to God in prayer the first time. He had to wait and continue to wait on the Lord to act. And yet he did. He waited. It demonstrates this disposition of trust over the long haul. Not just, oh, I'm going to pray to God and, and expect like a genie, he's going to snap his fingers and fix the problem. I'm going to pray to God and then I'm going to keep praying and keep praying. And I'm not going to turn to the left. I'm not going to turn to the right. There's nowhere else I go. He is my help and my deliverer. And I'm just going to keep on waiting until the Lord moves. So David, as he's faced with a new trial here in Psalm 40, is able to reflect back to another time when he had to wait. And he's saying, he's saying to himself, you know, I've waited before. So this present waiting season is nothing new for me. Of course, David wishes that God would have answered his prayer for deliverance yesterday. But the fact that God hasn't responded yet, the fact that God hasn't brought him out of his present trial is not going to discourage him because he has waited before. And when he waited before, at just the right moment, according to God's timetable, God stepped in and God delivered him. God inclined his ear to him. He heard David's prayer and he acted. That's what verse two tells us. Now, there are two aspects to the deliverance that God brought to David in the past. First, he says, God drew me up. In other words, God saved him from something. And then he says that God set his feet upon a rock. God saved him to something, to a new way of life. See, David describes that his feet were stuck and he was sinking in the miry bog. He's in a slimy pit metaphorically and he's sinking. It's almost like quicksand. 
And God just reaches down and just plucks him up, saves him out of the misery, out of the hardship. And God puts him on a secure and a stable path. Similarly, the deliverance of God provided for us in Christ both saves us from something, sin and death, and saves us to something, an abundant life in him. And this deliverance, this great deliverance that God brought for David put a song on his lips. He says that the Lord caused him to sing this new song because God saved him. And this seems to be the way that God's people always respond to a great deliverance. Back in Exodus chapter 15, right after God had delivered Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt, and God parted the Red Sea and they crossed over and then God brought the sea back down on the pursuing chariots of the Egyptians. God's people stop and they sing a song of praise and a song of thanksgiving. It's recorded for us in Exodus 15. I'll just read the first two verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. God delivered them mightily, and they praised. They sang a song. You know, the Christian church is littered with songs, right? We have so many songs, and yet we only know the smallest fraction of all of the songs around the world in Christian churches today or throughout the church's history for the last 2,000 years. But every generation of Christians, once they experience God's deliverance of them, that they go from death to life, that God forgives us of our sins and he sets us on a solid rock. When that happens, God puts a new song in our mouth and a new song in our heart. And every generation of Christians is composing new music, new praise, new worship, to the Lord. We sing a new song to him for delivering us. And notice finally, before we move on to the next verse, that when David thinks back to this prior deliverance, that God saved him and then God caused him to sing and to worship, David points out that God's deliverance of him was not only for his own benefit. No, he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I love this, the radical deliverance that God had worked in David's life, just like the radical deliverance that God had worked in Moses and the Israelites actually caused other people to pay attention to the Lord, caused other people to turn to the Lord and say, wow, if that's what your God can do, your God can defeat the greatest empire in the world right now, the Egyptians, and allow a puny people like the Hebrew people to walk out of that unscathed? Your God is real. Your God is powerful. Maybe I want to follow your God. And so God's deliverance, when he works deliverance in the lives of his people, it's not always just for us. It's, it's actually for other people's benefit as well. It causes others to fear the Lord, meaning to regard God and respond to him according to who he is. It causes others to put their trust in him. And so David moves on now and he reflects on the blessings of this deliverance that he experienced. We see this in verses four and five. David says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So in these verses, after David thinks about how God delivered him, and he thinks about how other people responded to that deliverance by turning to the Lord himself, themselves, he now stops and thinks about what an amazing blessing it is to be a person who's experienced God's deliverance, to be a person who trusts in the Lord. And he contrasts here in verses four and five, or sorry, verse four, he contrasts trusting in the Lord against trusting in idols or false gods. Just had to give it a moment and then it stopped. So he's in a contrast trusting in the Lord in verse four against trusting in false gods. That's what the sense of the expression after a lie in verse four means. In fact, the New International Version renders it false gods. Those who go after a lie, he's saying those who go after a false God. In fact, false gods are false because they are lies. They don't exist. And therefore, they cannot deliver on the things that we want them to deliver in our lives. And so David is saying, blessed is the person who makes the Lord his trust. Because the Lord can actually deliver. The blessings of those who trust in the Lord are spelled out in verse 5. He says, you have multiplied wonderful deeds and thoughts toward us. So notice David is thinking corporately now. He's not using thoughts toward me. He's using thoughts toward us. So he's thinking corporately. And now what I love is that he's not just looking back at his own personal deliverance like he was in verses one through three, but he's actually looking back at God's deliverance of all of his people historically. We know that because he uses this expression, God's wonderful deeds have been multiplied. Wonderful deeds points to God's miraculous acts. David must have in mind here, the 10 plagues that God had brought on Pharaoh and Egypt. David must have in mind here the parting of the Red Sea like I was talking about a minute ago. David probably is recalling the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down when God's people circled that mighty city. So David here is recalling God's wonderful deeds to us, to the people of God historically. He says, you have multiplied. He's talking about in the past, you have multiplied wonderful deeds and thoughts toward us. And this is so key because it doesn't just have to be our own deliverance that we reflect back on to be encouraged. When we're in a trial, of course, we look back at our own story and say, and we say, okay, God was with me here and God delivered me out of that and God provided for me here. That's important. And we should do that. But we don't stop there. We look outside of our own story, much like David is doing here. And we look back and we say, look at how God has been faithful to all of his people through every single generation. How then could we at this hour of trial doubt the goodness of God toward us? He delivered Moses. He delivered all of his people. He delivered David. He brought his people back out of exile in foreign lands. And he's been delivering the church for 2,000 years. Far be it from us today to doubt the goodness of God toward us. Yes, we might be in a great trial. 
But if we sit and we recount the wondrous deeds that God has worked on behalf of his people through every generation, friends, we will be encouraged in our present trials and hardships. And it's not just the wondrous deeds or the miraculous acts of God that David recounts. He's saying, you've multiplied your thoughts toward us as well. This means God's good intentions toward his people. In fact, the idea that's being conveyed here is very similar to Jeremiah's well-known promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, where Jeremiah says, on behalf of the Lord, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And David here is saying that God is multiplying his thoughts, his good intentions toward his people. And so he has to ask the question or or make the statement rather, none can compare with you. David's looking around at all the false gods of the world and saying, "Which, which of these gods can do what our God has done for us? And the answer, of course, is none. And so David wants to proclaim these good works and tell of them. And yet he has to admit that there are more than can be told. I love that expression. He's like, I'm going to try to tell you how amazing God is. I'm going to try to tell you all the awesome things that God has done for me personally and that God has done for his people historically. And yet there are more than can be told. I can only recall a fraction of God's goodness toward me and toward the rest of his people. And I think when all of us get to heaven and we see for the first time all that God has really been doing for us every day of our lives, the millions of times that God protected us from something that could have hurt us, the the circumstances that God changed in our favor, favor or worked out for our good, the things that God kept us back from that would have brought our destruction, when we really see it, all of what God has been doing for us and all of what God has done for his people throughout all of history. I believe with all of my heart that we're going to be like the queen of Sheba when she visited Solomon's kingdom. And she gets there and she observes all the glory of Solomon's kingdom and all of his wisdom. And she makes that famous statement. She says, the half of it wasn't told to me. It's true, family. That's how we're going to feel. God has multiplied his wondrous deeds toward us. And his thoughts toward each and every one of us that are in Christ. Oh, how blessed we are to experience God's deliverance. Well, moving forward in verses 6 through 8, we see here the inward response to deliverance. Again, David here is still thinking of this past deliverance. But he's recalling now how he responded internally to God's deliverance. Let me read it. Starting in verse 6, he says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, some of you are reading verse 6, the way I read verse 6 at first glance, and you're going, that's not actually right. Like, God totally required these sacrifices in the law of Moses. And that, of course, is true. And verse 6 is hyperbole. David here is exaggerating the issue to make a point. 
God did in the Old Testament require burnt offerings and sin offerings. And David had faithfully offered these as an Israelite. But David is making a point here. And it's very important. The point is this, that the sacrifices themselves were not what God was after. God was after obedience. Now, Israel's first king, King Saul, learned this the hard way. If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, God tells Saul and the army to destroy their enemies, the Amalekites, entirely, to not take any spoils of war. And yet Saul, after defeating the Amalekites, he keeps back all of the choice animals. And Samuel, the prophet of God, comes and confronts the king. How would you like that job? You have to walk up and call out the king of Israel. But he does it. He walks up and he confronts Samuel and he asks him, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the sound of livestock in my ears? And Saul says, oh, well, that's all the spoil that we just got from the Amalekites. And I'm sure Samuel's face just totally turned because Samuel knew what God had said to do. And so Saul, we read, goes into justification mode. And he goes, no, 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 but it's okay, Samuel. Don't worry about it because we're going to take all those animals and we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. I'm sure Saul is like big smile on his face. Like I did the right thing. Take that prophet of God. And Samuel says this in response, 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, Saul made the mistake of thinking that sacrifices are what made God happy. Like if, if, if Saul could just take all of the animals and slaughter them, that God's in heaven going, yay, a thousand animals were killed for me today. I'm so happy. That, that's what I want in the world. I just want animals to be sacrificed. No, Samuel looks at Saul and he's saying, you don't get it. It's not about the animals. God wants your obedience and family, plenty of Christians still make a similar mistake today. Sadly, I've known in my many years now as a pastor and as a Christian, I've known many Christians who are living, and you've probably, you probably know these people too, who are living, listen to me, living in obvious and direct disobedience to the clear teaching of God's word and yet they think that they're good with God because they pray, because they show up to church, because they give money to the church or other charities, maybe because they serve in ministry or, or some other performative thing that they can point to. All of these sacrifices that they make, these are all the things that I offer to God. And yet they're living in direct and clear disobedience to the teaching of God. And they don't even feel bad about it. Just like Saul didn't feel bad about it. They just think all of this stuff must make God happy. And therefore God's giving me a pass on this thing. Like literally, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I have known multiple Christians who are sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And not they made a mistake 
and, and they're convicted about that and they're trying to repent of that, just actively living in that disobedience, despite the fact that God's word is crystal clear on that issue, that sex is reserved for marriage, but they feel good about it. They feel okay about it because again, they can point to some other performative thing and they rationalize and they think, therefore God must be okay. Me and God are good right now. Many in the church today need to hear again the words of Samuel when he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God cares about obedience. He is after obedience. Now I need to say more because it's not just any obedience that God is after. God is after delightful obedience. God is after an obedience that flows from the heart. This is what makes verse eight so remarkable, especially for being in the Old Testament. David here says this, he says, I delight, you should underline that word. I delight to do your will, oh my God. What pleases God is when a person is so convinced of God's love for them that they fully surrender themselves to him that they trust him without reserve, that they say, God, I'm so convinced that you love me and that I'm secure in your love, that the delight of my heart now, the disposition of my heart is to do whatever you want me to do, to live for you, to serve you, to honor you, to offer my life to you. The person of faith is delighted to do what God says. And here's why. This is how they think about it. They think this way. How could a God who loves me so unconditionally, who has multiplied wondrous deeds toward me, who has nothing but good intentions toward me, ever call me to do something that isn't for my good? How could that be? Look at how good God is. Look at the way that he loves me. Look at all that he's done for me. Of course, the things that God asks me to do are going to be for my good and they're going to be a blessing to me. I trust that and therefore I delight to do your will, oh my God. This is what God's after. God has always been after your heart and my heart. Christianity is not a performative religion. Christianity is about a relationship with the God who created you and knows you and loves you. And when we enter into God's love through faith in Christ, God changes us at the very core of our being. All of a sudden, this isn't just, oh, I have to do these things to make God happy. This is, I delight to do these things to honor the God who loves me. And because I trust in his love and know that what he's asking me to do is ultimately for my good. This is transformative. This is totally different. This makes us different people. And this is pictured by two expressions here. The first one is, he says, you have given me an open ear, which is a really awkward expression in the Hebrew. It's literally this, ears you have dug for me. It's like God got a surgical tool out and just dug the ear canals for David. But obviously David had two ears, just as you do. And as far as we know, David's ears work just fine. So he's getting at something deeper here. 
his point is that God has done a supernatural work in David to where God has opened up his ears to actually receive God's word and to buy it and believe it and absorb it. He also writes, your law is within my heart. Again, another expression that's pointing toward the transformative work that God had done in David. No longer was God's law just something that was written over here in a scroll. Or for us today, no longer was, is God's law just in this book out here. That maybe David would get around to at some point. Maybe when he's in a bind, he'll kind of flip through the Bible and look up a topic he's interested in. No, no, no. David, as we know from Psalm 1, meditated on God's word day and night. He loved God's word and God's word was internalized. It was written now on his heart because he loved God's word. Because again, he knew every command of God was for his good, not for his harm. So he wanted to know God's word and he wanted to obey God's word from his heart. Now, before I move on, I just need to mention this, that this section, verses six through eight, is deeply significant because in the book of Hebrews, the author there applies it to Jesus Christ. In fact, he puts it on the very lips of our savior. Here's Hebrews 10, four through seven. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now in this passage in Hebrews, the argument there is that the sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament were always temporary, meaning they were going to need to be surpassed by something else later, and they were ongoing. They had to happen over and over and over again. Whereas the sacrifice of Jesus was offered once and for all, and it was final. And so for David in Psalm chapter 40, this prayer at, at this point, verses six through eight, refle reflects a grateful heart toward God that is revealed in a fully devoted life to the Lord. And yet for Jesus, of whom the Holy Spirit spoke about through David, this same passage speaks of a life that was devoted unto death to the will and purposes of God. And that death secured for God's people what the deaths of bulls and goats could never secure, namely forgiveness of sins, full and final. Lastly for us, this section reminds us that the only section, that, or the only sacrifice rather, that could ever secure our forgiveness is not ours to make. It's the sacrifice that Jesus made. Therefore, the path to pleasing God is not most deeply in what sacrifices you make, but in our trust in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. And listen, as we trust in Christ and the sacrifice that he made, we, like David, will offer ourselves delight in doing the will of the Lord. Paul says it this way in Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Moving forward, we just looked at the inward response to deliverance. David quickly points us to the outward response to deliverance in verses 9 and 10. David goes on now in this prayer. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So inwardly, we know that David's heart and his will were yielded to God. But now we see that outwardly, his voice was committed to proclamation. David could not restrain his lips. We already know that there was a new song that he was singing. And now he's just directly saying, I was declaring, I was proclaiming who God is and what God has done for me. One of the encouraging and beautiful points that came up and came out during my father-in-law's memorial service last Saturday was that Rick constantly talked about how God had saved him. And he constantly talked to other people about the Lord. He just couldn't restrain his lips. And so many people who knew Rick had testimonies of Rick just telling them about Jesus and pointing them to the Lord. And my father-in-law had a very rough past. And he had done many things that he had regretted as a younger man before he came to Christ. And when God got a hold of him, he very much felt probably like David here, like God had plucked him out of a pit of destruction and that God had placed him on a secure path and a new direction of blessing. And the overflow of that was that he could not restrain his lips, that he had to tell other people that he was once lost and now he was found, that he was once on a path leading to destruction and now he was on a path leading to life. And this is what happens to Christians. God delivers us. God saves us. And the more that we're aware of how much God has saved us from, the more we're going to reflexively communicate about God to others. There is a lot of talk in American society about how faith is a private matter. Don't bring that to the workplace. Don't bring that into government. Don't bring that into... We don't talk about that. It's just you and God in your closet. That compartmentalization of faith is not biblical, though. When I went to Biola, the mission statement there was think biblically about everything. And what's awesome about that is if we learn to think biblically about everything, we're going to speak biblically about everything. There's going to be something that's coming out of our mouths in every conversation that is flowing from our theology and from our understanding of what is actually true from God's word. So as the people of God, we are to be speaking the truth about God and sharing the good news about what God has done for us. So all of us should ask questions like this. Do I tell of God's deliverance in my life? Do I speak of God's faithfulness to me in front of my family, in front of my friends? Do I recount God's steadfast love and faithfulness within the great congregation of God's people? Like when I get together with the church, am I just talking about football? Am I just talking about other things? Or am I over here like, I can't restrain my lips. This is how good God is to me. This is how good God has been to me. This is the thing that God is doing in my life right now. This was David's attitude. The final move in this Psalm is the verses 11 through 17, where David now 
has a request for future deliverance. David has spent all of this time thinking back to previous deliverance and to all that God has already done for him. And now we get to the moment where David says, will you do it again, essentially? In verse 11, he says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So the psalm shifts from thanksgiving or praise to petition. Now verse 11 could be translated as a statement about God, which is what the ESV does. Or it could be translated as a request for God to do something, which is how the NIV translates it. The New International Version puts it this way. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. So there he's requesting that God protect him. I take it the way that the NIV does, mainly because it makes more sense of verse 12. But regardless, if verse 11 is him making statements about God or him asking God to save him, in verse 13, David clearly asks God to deliver him. He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now that we're at this point, we see that Psalm 40 is about a present crisis that David is facing, and he's asking God to help him. In verse 12, David described being encircled by many evils and being overtaken by his own sin. In verses 14 and 15, we know that he has adversaries. So maybe these many evils that are encircling him are people that are coming up against him. They're seeking his harm. And they're really enjoying the prospect of his, de- his demise. They're pointing their finger and, and they're laughing at him, actually. They're saying, aha, aha, at his hardship and his suffering. Look at verse 14. David says, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Now, what's got to be really hard about this present crisis and the fact that these people are mocking him and are rejoicing in his suffering is that the problems that David's facing here are mainly of his own doing. We see that in verse 12 where he says, my iniquities have overtaken me. The idea there is that his own sins are catching up with him now. It reminds me of the verse, your sin will find you out. Of course, we can try to cover and hide our sin. We can try to run away from our sin and all of the consequences of them. Or we can take our sin to God and say, you deal with it. And when we do that, God does deal with our sin. But David in this psalm is experiencing his sins catching up with him, at least the consequences of them. Of course, there's no clearer example of this in David's life than his famous sin, or infamous, I should say, sin with Bathsheba. And the cover-up murder of her husband afterward. And that sin came back to haunt David. And there were consequences that plagued him for the rest of his life. And people now in this psalm are delighting in his hurt as they watch the consequences of his sins play out. But David, as a godly man, had confessed those sins. And David had repented of those sins. And David believed with all of his heart what I hope every single one of you believe, 
that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. David believed that God, despite his own sinfulness, God would deliver him. And he asks him to do it in this psalm. And so as he prays for himself, he also prays for his people too. In verse 16, he says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. I won't make a big deal about this, but I do love this. That David, as we've seen, believed that God's love and mercy and grace and forgiveness was available to him. That's why he's praying the way he's praying. But not only that, David also believed that God's heart was big enough to include anyone and everyone else who would seek the Lord too. And so he's even in his prayer saying, God, may all who seek you, not just me, but may anyone else out there who turns to you in faith and seeks you experience the same blessings that I experience. And this is our firm belief as Christians. That yes, God loves us as Christians and that God will bless us and forgive us and protect us because of Christ. And yet at the same time, our belief is that God loves all the peoples of the world and that God's heart is turned toward them and that we should be praying that they too would come to the Lord and put their faith in him and experience salvation in the Lord. The final verse of this psalm goes like this. David says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. David ends here with an honest assessment of himself and an accurate assessment of the Lord. He says, I am just poor and needy. So basically he's saying, I'm weak I'm vulnerable. I'm incapable of helping myself and delivering myself. But he says, the Lord takes thought of me. And at the end of the day, if, if we can get those two things right, we're going to be okay. If we can have an accurate assessment of ourselves so that when we face trials we don't just turn toward our own resources and say, I got this. I'll figure this out. I can fix it. Just wait, honey. Give me another day or another week. I'll fix the problem. If we can avoid going there and just say, you know what? I'm poor. I'm needy. I don't have the resources to solve every crisis or to fix every problem. But the Lord takes thought of me. If we can just get there, we're going to be okay. And this is where David is. He says, the Lord takes thought for me. God's intentions are good for me. And what a comforting thought that is. For David, the assurance that the Lord takes thought of him was enough. He could stop his prayer there. He knows he's not alone. He knows that he's not invisible. Sure, God isn't answering him as quickly as he would like, but he knows that God sees him and that God loves him. And so he offers a final declaration of trust and a request for help. He says, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Psalm 40 is a wonderful prayer. It's the prayer of a man in distress. And specifically here, in distress because of his own sin. But even though he's distressed, he does not despair. 
Rather than that, he looks back on the faithfulness of his God to him and also to all of God's people. And this is an encouragement to him to hold on in faith, trusting in the Lord in his present trial. And so even as he waited patiently for the Lord last time, David ends this psalm now waiting on the Lord again. Because for David, and hopefully for every single one of us, there was nowhere else to turn. You are my help and my deliverer. Let's pray together.